Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. And today, you are going to hear me preach to myself as I realize some of my past uh, podcast episodes I needed to apply to myself and in particular to this transgender legislation that I've been talking about that's going forward in multiple states, even as uh, you listen. And the more that I think about this legislation, trying to protect minors from what's called gender-affirming care, the more I realize that that legislation is really the whole of a biblical worldview education in a nutshell. Now, I'm not going to cover that whole worldview education in the next 20 or 30 minutes, but I want to focus on a big aha moment that I had last week that ties back to some past episodes and makes them very practical in this particular context. In recent episodes, I've expressed an urgency to those of you who care about God's design for the family, and in particular, the right of parents to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to communicate with their legislators in Tennessee to look at what's going on in their own state. And that specific focus was put in an editorial that the flagship newspaper in Tennessee, the Tennessean, asked me to write because I was speaking about parental rights. And even the ACLU and liberals and parents of transgender children are concerned about parental rights. It is a universal concern because parents have universal duties. They owe their children and their rights are defined by the duties they owe. In other words, you have a right as a parent to fulfill the duties you owe your children. Now, this is what I put in my guest editorial, and I wish I could put this on our website, but because of the way we load stuff up, I can't link to things. And, and some of y'all have asked about that, and I, I can't do it. I apologize. If you would like to see the guest editorial, uh, just email my office and we'll send you a PDF version of it. Our email address is info at FACTN.org. That's the acronym for Family Action Council, Tennessee.org, FACTN.org. And I'll, I'll send you the editorial. It, it was a good one. But, but my aha moment came about through what I had written, and it tied into these past episodes I'm going to bring up. So here's what I wrote. For over 100 years, the United States Supreme Court has extended a measure of constitutional protection to the parent-child relationship. Parents, the court has said, have a certain sphere of authority in which to carry out the duties owed their children without the government second-guessing them at every turn. In 1925, in Pierce versus Society of Sisters, the Supreme Court rightly said, quote, the child is not 
the mere creature of the state. When the ACLU attorney also asserted that parents have a right to make medical decisions they think best for their children, I had to agree, at least in principle. Then I continued, that's why my antenna for preserving the parent-child relationship went up when I read in the bill, that's the bill here in Tennessee, that the legislature has a, quote, compelling and substantial interest in, quote, protecting children from emotional harm, end quote, and in, quote, promoting the dignity, end quote, of minors. What does that mean? That's what I put into my commentary. Now, my aha moment, though, reached back to a podcast on December 2nd entitled, Is Your Politics Theocentric? If you haven't listened to the podcast, I would encourage you to do so if you have time. In that podcast, I spoke to what Abraham Kuyper said in the lectures that he gave to Princeton Seminary in 1898 about objective versus subjective religion, or put another way, religion for the sake of God versus religion for the sake of man. Now, I'm going to state the introduction to that particular lecture, and then I'm going to work my way through it in terms of my own aha moment. This is where I begin sharing with you the preaching I did to myself in the last few days. Here's how Kuiper began that lecture. Here, he says, are four mutually dependent fundamental questions. So each is dependent on how you answer the preceding question. Does religion exist for the sake of God or of man? Now that's the question of subjective versus objective religion, or religion, as I said, for the sake of God or for man. The second question that depends on how you answer that first question is, must religion operate directly or mediately? In other words, does, does Christianity operate directly upon the individual or is it mediated to us through the church and its institutions, its procedures, its policies, its polity? The third question that then is dependent on how you answered the first two, is can religion remain partial in its operations or has it to embrace the whole of our personal being and existence? In other words, it's getting at this question of dualism. It's getting at this question of the secular and the sacred, the noumenal world and the phenomenal world, the spiritual and the secular. And then, depending on how you answer those first three questions, he says, the fourth question, does that religion bear a normal or must it reveal an abnormal character? That is, soteriological. And what he's saying here is, is everything that we see around us normal or is it abnormal such that there must be some means of salvation? Okay. Now, Kuiper gave summary answers to each of his questions. So, in answer to the question of whether religion exists for the sake of God or for man, he wrote this, Man's religion ought not to be egotistical, and for man, 
but ideal for the sake of God. Now, let me read that again. Man's religion ought not to be egotistical and for man, dealing with our ego, our sense of need, our sense of value, all of that stuff, but ideal for the sake of God. And that was where my aha moment kicked in. His second question that I'm going to talk about, hopefully today, if not, I'll pick it up next week. He gave this as the answer, uh, which the answer elucidates the, the second question. He says, religion has to operate not immediately by human interposition, but directly from the heart. In other words, we have to have our hearts changed to love what we ought to love and to love that which we love in the right order of things. In other words, I can truly love and appreciate a good ham sandwich. You may remember in The Princess Bride where um, the, the wizard said, oh, he said, I love it when the mutton is thin and the tomatoes are juicy, right? He loved those mutton sandwiches. But he should love them less than he loves his wife. He should love his wife and he should love his mutton sandwich less than he loves God. Now, the Christian would actually say, we love our mutton sandwiches and we love our wife for the sake of God, that it is that our love of those things are drawn up into our love for God. But you get the point of rightly ordered loves. Now, I'm not going to get to questions three and four and his answers to questions three and four today because I'm going to start to preach to myself and let y'all listen in. In my recent episodes, talking about the implications of Obergefell versus Hodges, dignity, the legislature starting to define dignity, and whether dignity was innate because we're made in the image of God or dignity results from the law or something the legislature does or doesn't do, I had focused on the anthropological or subjective aspects of the issue, namely that the court has said that there is no reality, no given nature to human beings, and that we each get to define and express our identity. And I had related that to the question of parental rights, that, oh my goodness, if we're not paying attention, the court will begin to redefine parental rights in terms of what it thinks dignity is, and they will redefine it for the same reasons they redefined marriage in Obergefell. I could see the effect of what was taking place as ultimately leading to the unraveling and the destruction of real objective as opposed to subjective parental rights. But I hadn't paid enough attention to the last two sentences in the Obergefell decision. And I'm going to just read them to you. But in speaking about the same-sex couples who wanted the dignity that comes with marriage, to have the dignity, the court said, quote, their hope is not to be condemned to live in loneliness and excluded from one of civilization's oldest institutions. They ask for equal dignity in the eyes of the law. The Constitution grants them that right. There we go. Now, what I had, had noted last week was that Clarence Thomas says dignity comes from God, 
But my, my greatest concern was how this understanding that dignity is a right to self-identification and expression would result in unraveling any objective truths about parent and child and who we are and so on and so forth. And I had not realized, here it is, what an insult this is to God. God has made us in his image, and there can be no greater glory, no greater dignity than to say the God who is independent in his existence and in all things, he's not dependent on anything for knowledge, he's omniscient, anything for, for power, he's omnipotent, anything, he's not bound by location, he's omnipresent. This God who in his very nature is love because he's triune and there is within the Godhead love and he lacks nothing. As it says in Acts chapter 17, it is not as if he is served by human hands in any way or needs anything from human beings that when I'm more worried about my parental rights than God's glory expressed in making us male and female, then my Christianity in that moment has gone from objective, focused on God, focused on God's rights, so to speak, and become subjective, focused on me and my rights. Does that make sense? In advocating for a good thing, I was more concerned about me. I was more concerned about your family than the God who is being insulted by a court that says we give dignity, insulted by saying that dignity is not something in the way that we've been made male and female, but we get to make it up ourselves. And I realized I had, I had not fully appreciated and seen the glory of God in such a way that I would say, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is contrary to the knowledge of God, who God is not just contrary to my rights as a parent, but this is contrary to the knowledge of God, and i got to tear that thing down, and I need to take my thoughts about this captive in obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, here's the second aspect of that. You see, what's happening here is dignity is directly given to us by God, not mediately. In other words, we don't get dignity because, well, we came forward in the church, uh, we've been baptized, we take communion, we go to confession, whatever it is, we belong to the right church. No, the greatest dignity man can have was, was communicated directly to him in creation. And what we're saying here is that, no, dignity is now mediated to you, not by God directly in his work of creating you in his image, male or female, but it is mediated to you through the acts of law by man in civil government, either a judge on the United States Supreme Court or a legislator. Now, what, what is so great about the dignity that God immediately gives us directly in creation is that no man, no law, no judge, no court can take it away. Rather, we would give it away by saying it is theirs to define and create and promote. You see, I had, I had failed to appreciate in this context the very things I was saying to you back in December 
about subjective versus objective religion, about religion for the sake of the person of me rather than for the sake of the glory of God. And, and, the, and those who wrote the Westminster Confession got it right, and it has been lost, but the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. When you know who God is and who you are made in his image, being restored in his image through Jesus Christ, well, wow. As the psalmist said in Psalm 73, who, on, who in heaven do I have but you, and who on earth would I desire, and what on earth would I desire more than you? When we've truly come to see by a supernatural faith the glory of God and what God is doing, we don't need the Supreme Court or the legislature to give us dignity. And a government that can give you dignity is a government that can take it away. And that is how I began to see the gospel in new ways in the context of politics. So whenever you hear a preacher or somebody else say, Christians should abstain from politics, it's it's secular, it's profane, it's godless, whatever it is, then you can tell them that David Fowler came to a greater understanding of the glory of God and the glory of God that was immediately bestowed upon Adam and Eve in, in making them in his image. And then he's come to better understand what Christ is doing to restore the greatest glory that a human being can have, and he learned it through being engaged in politics. Tell them that. There is no separation of law, whether it's God's or man's, and the gospel. There can't be. And, and what I had preached to you in December, I now saw in relation to my own advocacy connected with this transgender legislation. Now, I don't know what's going to happen with this legislation in Tennessee. It's a huge battle. And it's a huge battle, to be honest, because of pride. And another thing that I've learned, I'll close with this thought, and perhaps I'll pick it up next week, is that truly, where pride exists, there is contention. That's what Proverbs says, and that's what James says. You want to know where this cause of wars and battles among you comes down to? And ultimately, what does he talk about? Pride. And God will do one of two things. He'll either bring the prideful to repentance or destroy them. And so when we see great contention taking place in our life, whether it's in your marriage or with your children or your pastor or your elders or a friend or in the legislature, then then you need to consider that pride may be at issue. And if you feel your pride has been wounded, then perhaps it is God's gracious way of exposing to you that pride is resident in you and he wants it rooted out. And there are only two ways to deal with pride, repentance or destruction and death. And so what I see going on down at the legislature that perhaps at some other time I'll talk about, maybe even next week, is wounded pride that will not listen to anyone who has wounded their pride. And so they will reject knowledge. They will reject wisdom. 
because their pride has been wounded and their pride will not let them receive advice and counsel from those who have wounded their pride. And that's everywhere in politics. And I hope you will begin to pray into this matter of pride in our political bodies. Well, I'm going to stop here for today and thank you again for joining me. And if you've benefited from this lesson, let me encourage you, share it with a friend. Perhaps their pride has been wounded and they need to repent before destruction comes. And I hope you'll join me next week on the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.